The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Let's go ahead and look to Scripture. So we're concluding our, our summer series on what the Bible says about fill-in-the-blank. Today's what the Bible says about the will of God. And then next Sunday is our sixth year celebration here at GBF. Uh, scaled down, we're not having a big hoo-ha party, but... We're going to have some special things, special music, and uh, just a time to thank God for providing for us, sustaining us, leading us for six years here at GBF. Uh, Invite a friend, invite a friend or two if you'd like. I think we're going to be in the big sanctuary there. We'll have a little more room, some baptisms, uh, fellowship meals. So a a great time of celebration to look forward to. So uh, we're going to have a special message next week that won't be a part of this series. So this will be the last one. Today of this series, and then the week after, which would be the 16th, we will begin in a book of the Bible together out of the New Testament. Um, so we're looking forward to that as well. But with that, let's go ahead and answer this question uh, or look at the issue. What does the Bible have to say about the will of God? There's a lot of books that have been written over the years trying to address the will of God or answer the question. What is the will of God? How can I be in the will of God? Uh, Some people even define the will of God differently than others. Um, So we need to do that first. What do we mean by the will of God? I think it's pretty simple. When people are asking, what is God's will? I think all they're asking, or what they should be asking, is, well, what does God want? What pleases God? What is God's desire for me? And how I live my life day to day and the decisions that I make. To me, that's what being in the will of God means. And at any given time, a Christian can be out of the will of God or in God's will. So it's a step-by-step walk of faith with your Lord. And you're either in his will or you're not. Um, So we're going to look at that uh, to try to help us. Are there scriptural principles that will help guide us so that we, at any given moment, we can discern, are we living in the will of God presently? So here's one thing that I wrote by way of introduction. The safest place in the world is in the will of God. When you are in the will of God, then you are under the umbrella of God's divine protection and direction. When you are living in God's will, you can enjoy supernatural liberty and confidence in daily living and decision-making. The question to ask then is, how do we know if we are living in the will of God at any given moment? Well, I think God's Word is clear on this issue. It answers that question, and we're going to consider the following. I turned them into questions, seven questions, and they come right out of Scripture. And this can really help guide us and establish parameters to discern whether we are in the will of God at any given moment as we make decisions. And I ask this question, what is the will of God? In light of many times the gray areas of life and the gray areas of living, I mean, there are things that are just explicitly true that are stated and mandated in Scripture that we know are true. So there's no question because they are clearly seen in Scripture. But there are other things that come along in life where it's not black and white. There is a gray area, maybe a subjective Uh, issue going on in your life and you're confronted with more than one choice and you don't know what the right choice is or what God's best choice is or it's the right one or if you're in God's will or not and those confront us all the time from week to week so those are the areas I'm talking about these gray areas and 
It's these gray areas in life that can really paralyze and cripple people, cripple Christians even in their decision making. And sometimes uh, as a result, because we don't have a strategy, we're not thinking biblically, we might have the paralysis of analysis. The paralysis of analysis. That's when you analyze something so much, you, it, you analyze it to the point of overkill. What if I do this? And what if I do this? But Oh, but what if I do this? And then you're paralyzed and you can't make a decision because you are so fearful. So sometimes people have that, the paralysis of analysis, or they're crippled by fear and they're indecisive in life, just from day to day and week to week. And so indecisiveness can be an indicator that you're not in the will of God or you're lacking information or there's some ignorance on your part or uh, that something is askew and off kilter. Another sign of being out of the will of God or unclear is when you're flip-flopping in your decisions. You decide this and then you flip-flop or you're fickle. Or you take it back. Scripture addresses that mindset, sometimes called double-minded. We shouldn't be that way. We need to be clear. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You make a decision and you move forward. You can't live your life by saying, what if, what if, what if. We're always regretting. Wow, what if we didn't do this? Looking at an event five years back. What if we did it another way? You can't live your life looking in the rearview mirror as a Christian. That, that's not being in the will of God. Here's some practical questions that I've had to deal with and others that relate to this area that I'm talking about. Questions that confront you. Should I get married? Or whom should I marry? I've got three guys chasing me. Which one do I choose? Tough choice. Well, sometimes you don't have that choice. Who should I marry? When should I marry? A lot of factors that weigh into that. Weigh people down. And it's unclear. Where should I go to school? Where should I go to college? Should I go on to get my master's degree? Should I not? People really grapple with these issues. And it doesn't help sometimes when you've got Christians involved and they two parties disagree, three parties disagree, and it's hard to make a decision. Uh, should I accept this job? Or should I look for another job while you've got the current job that you have? We hear that a lot. Um, what career should I pursue? How many children should we have? Should we have children? Should we buy this house? Should we rent? Should we move to this area? So those are the kind of questions that I'm talking about. But I think Scripture gives us clear principles by which we can address these questions and lay them before God and allow His Spirit to move in conjunction with His truth to give us clarity as believers, even in these not-so-clear areas of life, but are very important decisions to make in life. So to help us with some guidelines on some principles that come right out of Scripture, I came up with seven questions. So let's go ahead and look at those. If you want to know, am I in the will of God, and you've got a big decision confronting you, then here's one way that you can kind of vet your thinking through this grid of the following seven questions that come right out of the Bible to discern whether you're in the will of God or not. Number one question to ask is, are you saved? It's number one. Are you saved? If you're not saved, you're not in the will of God. If you're not truly born again, you are not in God's will. You're outside of God's will. And that will affect your decision making. Absolutely. So to be saved is in God's will. Second Peter 3.9 
It says the Lord is and the context is talking about his patience. Towards some unbelievers in Peter's day. The Lord God, he is merciful, he is patient, he is uh, long suffering toward us as sinners, humanity. He is not willing. And that's a good translation. He is not willing. That any should perish. See, there's the will of God. God is not willing that you should reject Him. He is not willing. He doesn't desire your resistance, spiritually speaking. His will is that you would repent, come to Christ, and be saved. So that's step number one to getting into the will of God. Examining yourself and saying, am I a Christian or am I not? Am I born again? Am I not? And serious, honest evaluation from God's point of view. The Lord is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So if you have at some point repented in your life towards God and towards Jesus Christ and asked Him to save you and you became born again, that's the first huge key step in getting under that umbrella of God's will to protect you, guide you, and lead you. Because if you don't know Christ personally, you are not in God's will. If you don't know Christ personally, Paul says in Ephesians, you have no hope in this world. That's, that's why it's hard for a pastor to counsel someone who's not a Christian on an issue that they're concerned about that has nothing to do with their salvation. Where I've had unsaved couples over the years ask me to counsel them because they're having problems in their marriage, but they're not believers. And for me, it's really simple. What You know what you need to do here is you, you need to get saved. You need to become Christians and Know God and Jesus Christ personally. That will transform your marriage. Anything I do uh, by way of suggestion to help you resolve conflict, that's really a band-aid on what the real problem is in your life. So question number one, are you saved? If you can say confidently before God and honestly that you're saved, born again, then then you are in the right uh, position and the right step towards being in God's will. That's where it starts. And then the rest of these are after you are saved, after you become a Christian. So all of these are for us believers to think through these. The next question after are you saved is are you spirit filled? Two key passages here, Ephesians 5, 18, and then have your finger in Galatians 5. Are you spirit filled? Now, spirit filled, filled with the spirit. For the most part through church history for 1900 years was understood in a uniform manner. And then there were certain theologies that arose in the 20th century where alternative interpretations were given to that. Primarily saying that only a select few Christians, only the super spiritual Christians are truly spirit filled. And that's not true. Any any Christian, uh, any believer can at any given point be spirit filled or filled with the spirit. And this terminology comes right out of uh, Ephesians 5.18. So let's look at it, what the Apostle Paul is talking about there. And he's talking to Christians and he says, do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. I think that's kind of face value, just kind of a weird comparison. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. So being filled with the spirit is the opposite of being drunk. Well, I'm 12 years old. I don't drink. Can I be spirit filled? It's a good question. The contrast that Paul really is making is what is the controlling influence in your life? That's what he means. To be filled with something in the New Testament means to be controlled by that. There's a passage in the Gospels where it says the Pharisees were filled with anger. They were filled with rage. 
towards the teaching of Jesus. What does that mean? That means their anger controlled them. So to be, fu- to be filled with something is what is the dominating, controlling influence in your life at any given moment. So basically what Paul is saying here is, if you're a Christian, you need to be in a position where you are controlled by the Spirit of God in your life and don't allow other influences to control you, to distort your living, to distort your thinking. And alcohol can be one of those influences that can control you. If you drink too much alcohol, it impairs your decision-making. It impairs your thinking abilities. It impairs your relationship with God. It impairs your relationship with other people. It is controlling you. It's the dominating influence in your life in that moment. And Paul's saying, rather, as a Christian, be controlled by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit lives in every single Christian. And you are either pleasing the Spirit or frustrating the Spirit. You're either letting the Spirit of God lead you Or you're trying to get out ahead of him in any given moment. And Paul says you need to evaluate and see what's going on in your life. Are you letting the Spirit of God lead you? Is he controlling you, your decision making, your thinking, the conduct of your life? That's what it means to be spirit filled, to be controlled by the Spirit of God at any given moment in your life in contrast to other controlling influences in your life. And what are other common controlling influences in our lives? Bitterness. These are attitudes. A Christian could be controlled at any given moment by bitterness, anger, pleasure, popularity, fear, jealousy, worry. These are coming to all of us at any given moment. My question this morning, what is your mindset and attitude this morning? What is controlling you, your thinking, your attitude? Is it joy in the Holy Spirit of God or is it something else, some alternative? If it's an alternative and other than the Spirit of God, then you're not walking in the Spirit. That is a problem. And when you're not walking in the Spirit, your decision-making capabilities are impaired. And the worst thing you can do in that situation is make an important decision in your life. Because you might short-circuit what God's best is for you in that given moment. And then there will be consequences. So a very important point. The other passage I want to look at is uh, if you want to, okay, well, what does that mean to be spirit-filled and controlled by the Spirit? And that is kind of a generic principle. What are the specifics of it? What does that look like? And that's the beauty of Galatians chapter 5, 21 and following. Let's look at it right after, or right before Ephesians there. Paul says, at any given moment, every Christian can put themselves in Galatians 5, 19 through 23. And you are either walking in the flesh or you are walking in the Spirit. You're either Spirit-filled or you're controlled by something else. And here's what it looks like in your life and in my life. Attitudes and actions. Very clear. So, he starts in verse 19. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. The deeds of fleshly living, they are clear. What's your attitude right now? How are you living? The following deeds of the flesh are immorality... Impurity, sensuality, verse 20, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. Verse 20 is very important because that whole clump of words from enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, all have to do with how you relate to other people. What are your relationships like? Are you at odds with people at home right now? Are you at odds with other Christians in the church? Are you at odds with... Wow, does that fill your life? 
Is that dominating your life right now? Broken relationships everywhere you turn. That is not good. You are walking in the flesh. Uh, Verse 21. Other deeds of the flesh, envying, drunkenness, carousing, things like these, of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you before, that those who practice these things, or this is a, a habit and pattern long-term of their life, then people like that don't inherit the kingdom of God. But Christians can fall into every one of those sins. And then verse 22, so instead of living in the flesh, walk in the Spirit. And here's what it means to walk in the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, these are fruits you will exhibit in your life, primarily in attitudes, actions, words. The fruit of the Spirit, the byproduct of the Holy Spirit working in your life. Love. Godly love towards other people, even people that are hard to love. Even people you need to forgive. Joy. Wow. Do you have deep-seated joy in your heart? Joy and contentment and a supernatural peace that flows out of that by virtue of your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're lacking joy, that's a good indication that, wow, maybe I'm not... In the spirit. And this is a deep seated joy that can be true no matter what's going on in your life, even in the midst of hardship. Peace, very important one. Do you have a supernatural, settled peace in your heart right now in your life based on the direction of your life, decisions you're about to make, a supernatural peace? That means you've got a settled heart and a settled mind. You've got settled thoughts and settled emotions that is inexplicable because it is supernaturally given by God. I think that is one of the key fruits in subjective gray area decision making. I believe for me it has been for the last 25 years as a Christian. Looking at all these other areas, okay, I think, but ultimately when it's time to make the decision, if I do, do I have a peace from God? There is a subjective yet real ministry of the Holy Spirit working on the hearts of Christians that is a subjective ministry and it is real. It's not mystical. It is real and it is subjective. Paul talks about it in Romans 8. And the the byproduct of it is a supernatural peace. I'll never forget when we were... This has happened a couple of times. We were at a church and we were leaving that church and we were going to go somewhere else to another ministry. And there was a good church that contacted us in Oregon. And I went out for an interview. That went well. Went out for another one. That went really good. And then they said, "Oh, we want you." And then they brought, uh, they had me and Debbie come out, and that went really good. And they were ready to sign on the dotted line. We want you. This is it. You're uh, a perfect fit for the ministry needs that we have here at the church. This is like 15 plus years ago. And so we were like, "Praise the Lord, Amen." And then we got home, and then we agreed to come. We didn't sign the papers yet, but we agreed. Yeah, this is. This is what we want to do. And then at the 11th hour, the 11th and a half hour, uh, my wife just pulled me aside and said, uh, I don't think we should go. And I said, what? And I was more gracious about it. And uh, please, please, honey, dear, the love of my life, please explain how the Holy Spirit of God is working in your heart and mind in such odd ways. Um, and the only answer she could give is she said, I can't explain it. I do not have a piece about this. Well, you had a piece last week. Yeah, I did, but I don't anymore. And I was like, we, we ain't going. And I didn't hesitate. And I thought, God is probably moving the Spirit of God in my wife in light of this passage, and I cannot make an important decision like this when my wife, whom I'm one with, doesn't have a supernatural peace. And I said, well, then I've got to call their elders. And I did. And I explained it, and they totally understood. They honored that. Then five years go by, ten years go by, and then you start, hmm, maybe we should have taken that job. <laughs> I'm always like, no, God knew what he was doing. I think, I think we're good. Now it's been 15 plus years. 
later and looking in hindsight, we clearly see the hand of God intervened and actually protected us big time by not allowing us to go there. When everything else said yes, except for that supernatural peace that I believe the Spirit of God was prompting on a Christian heart. That's why it's so important. So the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and how you talk to people. How you talk to your spouse, how you talk to your kids. Fly off the handle. Oh, you're not in the Spirit. You're not walking in the Spirit. Gentleness, self-control. So at any given moment, you can put your life through that grid and determine pretty clearly whether you are in the Spirit of, walking in the Spirit of God right now. Very helpful. So, are you saved? Number two, are you spirit-filled? Going on to number three, are you submissive? This is also a basic component to being in God's will and the center of God's will. Are you submissive? we got First Peter 2, but you also, if you can, put your finger in Romans 13. Peter says in First uh, Peter 2, 13 through 15... He's talking to Christians who live in a fallen, pagan world, very similar to our situation, where we're going to confront hardships, rejection, isolation as believers all the time at every turn. We are going to be mocked, isolated, criticized, sometimes persecuted. And Peter said, well, that's normal if you're living like a Christian. So how do we deal with this as Christians? Well, we need to have a submissive attitude. So that's 1 Peter 2, 13 and following. He says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Verse 13, submit. That's a command. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Submit because God says it's right. Get this. To every human institution. Wow. Government institutions, educational institutions, legal institutions in which you live. Submit. That's, that should be our first thought. We need to be submissive people to every single... The family institution, the institution of the church, the institution of uh, the government, whether to a king as to one in authority, even if he's an unbeliever, verse 14, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do Right. Why? Why should we be submissive categorically as a regular basis in lifestyle? Verse 15, for such is the will of God. There it is. You want to live in the will of God? Then be a submissive person wherever you go. And you can't avoid it. We just live under authority in every area of our life. It's inescapable. That's by God's design. That brings order. That brings peace. Think of all the authorities you have in your life. And the question is, are you submitting to all these authorities that God has put in your life and in my life? Are you submitting to the government? Are you submitting to the laws of the land? Are you submitting to that speed sign that says 35, 65, whatever it is? Don't park or no parking. If you're married, are you submitting to your husband? Because that's what Scripture calls a wife to do. In a hard one in 1 Peter 3, it says that the wife should obey her husband. Whoa. Whoa, that's scary, isn't it? Obey. If you're a child, you should be submitting to your parents. As long as you are dependent upon your parents, you should be submissive. If you're in college and you're dependent upon your parents, you need to be submissive. If you're seven years old, you need to submit to your parents. That pleases God. If you are in sports, you need to submit to the rules of the game. You need to submit to the referee 
in the game. You need to submit to the coach who is coaching you. You need to submit to the rules of the game. You can't just whine and complain all the time. You can't always blame it on the referee, which is very commonplace. Somebody always blaming everything on the referee is not in the will of God. They're not submissive. That doesn't please God. I've had a lot of jobs in my life, and one of the hardest jobs I've ever had was being a referee of a basketball league. I've done it a couple of times. It's horrible. Never want to do it again. Because when you're you're refing a basketball game, everybody hates you. Nobody likes you. Both teams, they hate you. Both coaches, they don't like you. The players, the fans, and they're calling out at you from the sidelines, calling you names, and you can't do anything about it because you don't know who said it. The fans, they're horrible. And they're talking about you and your mother, and on and on it goes. It's terrible. I can't, my skin is too thin. I quit. So even though I hated refing basketball, it did confirm my homardiology, my theology that people are utterly sinful and wicked. (laughs) But I will never ref again. Um, What other areas should we be? Oh, if you're a student, are you submissive to your teacher, to the rules of the school? to the principal, to the administration. That's why I don't understand people who go to private schools and then they complain about the rules of the private school. It's like, well, you had a choice you knew going in. If you don't like the dress code, don't go there. If, you're not, if, you, if you want to go there, then don't complain. Get your attitude in check. Submit to the authority. They are the authority. Do that. God will be pleased. Do that. You are defying God. This is how Christians should live. There should be authority, submission to authority in the church. Authority to Scripture. Every Christian should be submissive to Scripture. This is what the Bible says. Oh, okay, then submit to it. I never cease to be amazed at with Christians who clearly, is this what you think the Bible says? Yes. Then do you believe it? Well, no, I don't want to do it. That's disobedience. We are all guilty of that at times. So the authority of the Bible, we need to submit to it. The authority of the human elders that God has put in place in the church, you need to submit to the elders Scripture is clear about that. We need to submit to one another even as fellow believers. You need to submit to your boss at the workplace. Not Complaining about your boss is not being submissive. That's maligning his authority. Okay, maybe he's a lousy boss. Okay, then pray for a new boss. But don't be having a lack of submission. Obey your landlord if you're renting and all the rules therein. Obey the speed limit. I already said that. Obey police. They should be respected and submitted to. Uh, So this is a life of living in submission, and it pleases God, which takes me to now Romans 13 that says this about all these authorities. Because our first inclination is, well, submit to the government, submit to the laws, submit to this, and then we want to say, yeah, but. Submit to your husband. Yeah, but. You don't know my husband. Submit to your parents. Yeah, but. You don't know my parents. Submit to the governor. Yeah, but. I didn't vote for him. Doesn't matter. Romans 13.1, every person is to be in subjection, is submit to, is to submit to, to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. Did you know that every authority in place, in life, in the world was put there by God? Whether they're good, bad, or ugly. Really. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority and is not submissive has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have a Opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So if you defy authority, you will get consequences. And there are two exceptions for, two exceptions for Christians to not submit to authority. And it's any time an authority is asking you to do something, basically this violates Scripture. Actually, there's one. 
Anytime an authority asks you to do something that clearly violates Scripture, you don't do it. They might ask you to do something that the Scripture forbids, or they might forbid you doing something that Scripture commands, like sharing the gospel. That's the only exception. So if you're a submissive person, by the way you conduct your life, that's going to be, go a long way in being in God's will and having clarity in decision-making and being blessed by God. So are you saved? Are you spiritual? Are you submissive? Number four, are you suffering? And that's, Are you suffering for obedience to God? Are you suffering as a Christian in this hostile world? At times where you go, you are called not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Philippians 1.29 you're suffering for Christ, you are in the will of God. 1 Peter 3.17 It is better if God should will it. There it is. Here is God's will for you, Christian. So that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. If you're suffering for being a Christian, that's not a bad thing. The reason this is important is because sometimes we make a decision that's a godly decision, the right decision, a biblical decision, and we get pushback or criticism Many times this happens in your immediate family. You've got family members who aren't Christians. They invite you to something. They ask you to do something. They want you to make a deal in co-partnering with them in something that violates Scripture, it violates your conscience, and you decide with your family members, no, I can't participate, I can't do that. And they get very angry, sometimes even go ballistic, and then talk about it and then make you feel bad, or sometimes there's a guilt that comes with that. And maybe you begin to second-guess yourself, wow, I'm not being very loving. I've upset my, all of my unbelieving family. We need to be loving, and then loving is the guiding rule for you, and then you think, well, I'll just do whatever they want, and then you roll over like a, a doormat and acquiesce to every request they have, even the ungodly ones that compromise your integrity as a Christian. That is easy to do, especially in our culture. And you've got to draw the line. You've got to take a stand for you, what you know is true and right and obedient and pleases God. You also have to know what offends God and is unacceptable, and you can't compromise not only does it happen in the family, it happens in the workplace all the time. I hear stories about it all the time. Christians are working in the, in the workplace and their boss wants them to do something by way of compromise so that we'll get a bigger return or this will help our finances or nobody needs to know. Just make this decision. I remember that when we were buying a condo like 20 years ago. And we got down to sign the papers with the mortgage dealer and the mortgage company's wanting us to do, you know, compromise and lie and fix figures. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. So, suffering. Are you suffering for your obedience and activity and ministry for Jesus Christ? Places you go. Family, workplace, out in the world. can happen anywhere. can even happen from other Christians. You get flagged from other Christians for not what you know is the right thing and they have a wrong understanding. So if you do feel guilty, if you are being persecuted or mocked, you need to evaluate why that's so. Because you, can't, you could be criticized or mocked or persecuted for sinful reasons and you need to discern that you might be offending an unbeliever because you're just rude you lack tact you're a jerk christians can do that that is sinful that is wrong that is horrible recognize it repent turn from it so are you saved are you spiritual are you submissive are you suffering for jesus christ in obedience to him and the number five are you satisfied 1 Thessalonians 5. A whole bunch of wonderful little bullet points at the end of that epistle. Great reminders and commands. 
just a flurry of them that Paul gives, starting in verse 16. Rejoice always. This is, this is the conduct of believers. This is how they should live their life. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Uh, verse 18, in everything give thanks. Present tense, in everything continue to give thanks. In everything, no matter what's going on in your life, good and bad, you should always have a thankful heart as a Christian. Toward, not for that bad thing, but to God. We always have our salvation to be thankful for, forgiveness of sin to be thankful for, Him as our rock to be thankful for, our future with Christ forever, which is secure to be thankful for. There's always something significant that a Christian can be thankful for no matter what is going on in their life. That's why Paul could say, in everything give thanks, no matter what is going on in your life. Well, it doesn't matter what trial. If you're focused on self and all depressed and don't have joy and aren't giving thanks to God, your focus is wrong. Look up to Christ. Look up to Christ. The Apostle Paul. Get beat up. Acts chapter 16 in Philippi. They beat him to a bloody pulp. And he's not whining in the jail cell. He gets up and he's singing hymns and songs. Praise God. He was thankful. He was giving thanks with his partner he got beat up with. So uh, in everything give thanks. This should be a conduct of our life, a pattern of our life. If you do, for this is God's will for you. There it is. How can I be in God's will? Be thankful. Be a thankful Christian. What is the opposite of being thankful? Uh, Being critical, being a whiner, being a complainer. And those are all condemned explicitly in Scripture in the New Testament. Do everything without complaining. And again, it's thankfulness towards God. And when you are regularly in an ongoing manner thankful truly to God for His greatness and what He's done in your life and how we deserve nothing, it changes your whole attitude, your whole disposition. How you think. If you're always thankful to God, you will be in His perfect will. So, we need to evaluate that one. And that's hard. Tough from day to day and incident to incident to live an entire day, let alone every day, every week. Always giving thanks and keeping our attitude in check. But it's a great reminder. If you want to be in the will of God, then always give thanks to the Lord God and your Savior, Jesus Christ. So are you saved? Are you spirit-filled? Are you submissive? Are you suffering? Are you satisfied? By the way, unsatisfied, you could say, are you saying thanks? It's a good way to say it because it's ongoing. It is continual. It never stops. It's a pattern of behavior. Another way to say it is, are you satisfied? Are you satisfied with life? Because if you're not satisfied, you're discontent. If you're discontent, you're going to whine and complain. So these are all interrelated. So number nine, after those, are you saturated? What do you mean by that? is are you saturated with the Word of God? We all go through dry spells, and a lot of times that correlates to the fact that we haven't been in God's Word. We haven't been reading it. We haven't been meditating on it. Maybe we haven't been with the fellowship of the saints where we're being it heard, taught authoritatively and dynamically where it's relevant in our life, and we're going on a dry spell. That's easy to do. And when you are distancing yourself from a regular intake of Scripture then your thinking isn't being continually saturated in the mind of God. And then you're going to deviate and go back to human thinking, your thinking, which is self-centered thinking, which is wrong thinking. And as a result, your decisions are going to be wrong. Because what God thinks, He put down in Scripture. When we're taking in Scripture, Scripture's thoughts are God's thoughts. We, we can literally know what God thinks when we look to the Scriptures. You have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul said it. 
the, what God's infinite, amazing, supernatural thoughts are have been put down for us in writing. So we should be regularly in God's Word, taking it in continually, because left to ourselves, we will always, for the most part, think the wrong thing. That's why it's an ongoing, active discipline and process. There has to be regular intake of God's Word. God's Word continually and His truth needs to leach our thinking and leach our brain. Romans 12, too, I put down there, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Actually, I want to start uh, the beginning of that verse because of the context in uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Important phrase just before what I put down there for you. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, live in a godly way, acceptable to God, pleasing Him in His will. Well, how do you do that? Well, verse 2. Well, first of all, by not being conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. And primarily it's talking about being squeezed in the mold of the world and its thinking processes, the ideologies of the world, the priorities of the world, the philosophies of the world, whether it's a religion or something you watch on CNN or in the, the public school or in any school. If it's contrary to God's Word, don't allow that to conform or form your thinking. So you've got to do two things to check your thinking. Don't be conformed to the thinking of this world, but rather be transformed. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. Metamorphosis, a supernatural ongoing change needs to happen in our brain, in our thinking. You are what you think. That's what Scripture says. So we need to be transformed, present tense, in an ongoing manner, over and over again as a lifestyle. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We need to renew our mind. What goes in comes out. We need the Word of God coming in into our mind constantly and continually to vet our thinking. Think on things that are true. Think on things that are true. Philippians 4.8 Always keep your thinking in check with the truth of God's Word. If you're not conformed by the world, but you're transformed by the renewing of your mind continually from Scripture, it says, then you will be able to prove what the will of God is. See, you'll be in God's will if your thinking is right. And people make a lot of bad decisions. We all make bad decisions when we're not thinking right. We've got wrong information. We've made wrong assumptions. We don't have biblical truth. It's horrific. Prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in your heart richly. Let it overflow. Take it in. Thy word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you, Lord. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. All these injunctions and examples from Scripture that the Christian needs to continue to be taking in the word of God. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 2, that the word of God is our very milk. It's what we live on day to day. It's our spiritual nutrition that we need every single day. It is our milk and our meat, the word of God is. So what is your diet, spiritually speaking? Are you going days and weeks without the word of God? You're going to have problems. Every one of us will be susceptible to not being in the will of God if we don't have that intake of the Word of God, if we are not saturated with His truth. And when it comes time to make a decision, it's going to be foggy or we might make the wrong decision. So are you saved? Are you spirit-filled? Are you submissive? Are you suffering for Christ? Are you satisfied? Are you saturated? And then finally, number seven, are you sanctified? I'm going to turn there in 1 Thessalonians 4. Very important passage. What does sanctified mean? Well, sanctified, it's an Old Testament term. Sanctified means to be, literally means to be set apart. Actually, the Old Testament, especially Leviticus, to be sanctified means to be set apart 
by God in a special way for a holy purpose. Being set apart for God. Being set apart from those around you to fulfill the will of God. And then the word sanctification takes on even a more specific nuance and meaning many times in the New Testament. And here's an example where it's actually referring to your moral life, your sexual life. Literally, that's what it's talking about. Uh, And it's, get this, well, what's the will of God? I want to be in the will of God. Well, here it is. God says, well, for this is the will of God. Examine your life. For this is the will of God. What's that? Your sanctification. Being set apart. Your holiness. Are you living a holy life? And any single one of us at any given time can examine our life. Am I being holy right now? Am I set apart? Am I sanctified? Am I morally pure? This is the will of God. If I'm morally pure right now, could be I'm in God's will. If I'm morally compromised, I am not in God's will. I'm susceptible to deception, to injury, to devastation. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he explains what he means. That is specifically that you would abstain from sexual immorality. Stop engaging in acts of sexual immorality, whatever that is. By the way, the the term there, sexual immorality, is a generic term. It includes a lot of things. Many things under that category. It's a generic, broad term. It could be things you watch, things you read, things you do, things you think. That's what I mean by broad. You've got to examine every area of your life and ask yourself, am I set apart, sanctified, living holy, moral living, moral decisions? And then he says, well, if you, are, if you aren't, you need to abstain. You need to stop it. You know, like cut off your right hand, Jesus said. Pluck out your eye if you have to. What does that mean? Take drastic measures in your life as a Christian to help you not stumble, to be preventative measures, to protect you. We are all susceptible. Jesus said the the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's true of every single one of us. Set up safeguards. Set up accountability. And in this area of your life, there's only one way to guard against it. That is high accountability. High, honest, visible, intrusive accountability in your life. It's got to be there. That's one of the reasons why God said it's not good for the man to be alone. And it's not good for the wife to be alone. They need to be together to provide high, intimate, personal, honest accountability to protect this area of life as well as many others. This is the will of God, your holiness and moral living. That you abstain from sexual immorality in order that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. You know how to control your body. You don't take yourself where you shouldn't take it. You shouldn't allow your eyes to see what you shouldn't be seeing. And again, if you need accountability in your life, then you need to get accountability in your life. Otherwise, verse 5, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. This is how pagans conduct themselves. They're just living for pleasure. They think it's okay. Christians should not live like that. When you're doing that, verse 6, he says that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. God didn't like this. God is not pleased with this. But if you're a Christian, God is gracious. He wants to help you. He wants to help all of us and relieve us and grab us by the hand and pull us along and get us into a position where we are abstaining and we are living a holy life. And again, it's probably going to take others around you to get involved in your life, to hold you accountable 
to that end. But very, very important, especially in this day and age. We've got the Internet and high-speed computers and whatever else, and uh, Christians are susceptible to sexual immorality like never before in the history of the world. It's just a reality. So if that's true of you, then you've got to deal with it. Take drastic measures. Usually entails finding somebody that you totally trust. Talk to them. Confess your sins. He who hides his sins, according to Proverbs, does not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes is blessed by God. You want freedom. You want liberty. You want healing. You want forgiveness. You want victory. Then we have got to confess to one another, become vulnerable, and help each other. Only way to do it. And if you do that, then you're on your way to staying in the will of God in this area. So are you saved? Are you spirit-filled? Are you submissive? Are you suffering? Are you satisfied? Are you saturated with God's Word? Are you sanctified and living a holy, moral life? Then point number eight. When it comes to the hard decisions in life, then you do number eight. Well, what is that? If the seven are true in your life above, then do whatever you want. Isn't that amazing? That's what I meant by liberating. Great freedom and liberty that God gives to us in decision-making when we are living under the umbrella of His will. You're in the will of God. You make a decision while you're in the will of God. And many times when you're in the will of God, a decision that's even hard is easy to make. I look back at my life I was evaluating last night. Man, there were some stupid, terrible decisions I made. Actually, before I became a Christian, that's all I made was stupid decisions. Then I became a Christian, and even since then I look back and say, wow, that was not smart. That was a bad decision. There are consequences to that decision, and other people are suffering it from it as a result. And then I look back at other things that happened in our life. It was like, wow, that was a good decision. I can't believe how God blessed it. And I remember what a peace I had when I made that decision, even though it was a hard one. In my marriage with Debbie, it's like sometimes she's... it's a peaceful decision for her. It's easy and it's a little bit of a struggle for me, but I know it's the right thing to do and then we do it or vice versa. Where No, this is a no-brainer. Man, This is I got the supernatural peace of God. We need to do it and she'll fall along and then we'll look back and see what God does. And I was reminiscing on some of those specific examples. One that came to mind was when the idea of a church plant here at GBF was brought to my attention by a pastor down in Morgan Hill, Pastor Mike, uh, about seven years ago and was describing it to me, and I was like, hmm, interesting. Okay, wow, that sounds like a lot of work. Wow, that sounds tiring. Church plant from scratch? Ooh, wow, okay, hmm, who's going to fund this? Wait, how's this going to happen? Um, and i got to leave the church parsonage that I'm currently in at this other church where we're all provided for and we got health insurance and all that stuff? And then the more he talked, the more I listened, and I ran it by Debbie, and she's like, wow, this sounds interesting. Let's uh, listen. And we went to the meetings, and we prayed, and kind of about the same time, it was just, ding, yes, this is what God wants us to do. But it was very risky from a human point of view. And we just plunged, took the plunge. I think as we plunged and we were on the way down, Debbie looked at me and said, do you have a contingency plan? (laughs) Splash. No. I just had a supernatural peace of God at the time, and he honored that, and that's been a blessing. But there have been other times where uh, it didn't go like that. I remember when I accepted a pastorate to go to Utah, like, 20, almost 20 years ago, I thought, man, that was a disaster. Just about everything about it, looking back, was a disaster. Then I began to go through, okay, now what, what went wrong or awry, or was I supposed to do that? Was I, yeah, I was saved, spirit, filled, blah, blah. And there were a couple on here I thought, ooh, didn't do that one. Wow, no wonder we had such a trial. 
then here's where God is gracious. Here it is almost 20 years later. If we look back and say, that's what we were supposed to do. God made everything work out, just like Romans 8.28. Even when you make a bad decision, a poor decision, God is so gracious and merciful. We knew, man, if we didn't go through that horrible experience, then this good thing never would have resulted. And this good thing never would have resulted. And then we never would have moved to the beautiful Bay Area here in California. And we never would have been a part of GBF and the church plant uh, had we reversed our decision. I think, man, that's the grace of God and the hand of God and the providence of God and the sovereignty of God. And he can overcome and even negate bad decisions or sometimes even the consequences of us making a decision that's short-circuiting the will of God. Isn't that great? That's our, our gracious God. And that was the first 19 years of my life where I was not a Christian. And like I said, every decision I made, I, wasn't, I didn't pray over any decision. Like when I was in Colorado, where am I going to go to college? Well, I decided to go to college in California, but I was not a Christian. So I didn't lay it before God. God gave me, I had two choices I could have picked. And I chose the one in California because it was the furthest away from home. That's not really a spiritual decision. Or even the college I went to is totally self-centered. I want to go to this college where I can play basketball. That's not spiritual. And I never got to play basketball there. But when I got there, I ended up with, uh, some Pentecostal Christian roommates who witnessed to me, prayed for my salvation. And within three months of being there, I got saved. And then a little later, this cute blonde came along to that college. What's your name, Debbie? And then we ended up getting married. So I thought, wow, I made a bad decision or I didn't even consider God, yet God gave me Jesus and my wife. Despite me. That is the goodness, mercy, and grace of God. Isn't it? And we can thank Him for that. So with that, let's go ahead and pray and thank God that He has clearly made His will known to His people. Father, we do thank You for, again, our time together on this Lord's Day. We do celebrate, worship You, Your greatness, who You are, Your, your mercy and love towards us, Your people. Thank You for the forgiveness of sin we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and His death on our behalf and that You adopted us into Your family, that You've given us the Spirit of God, to live in us. You've given us the treasure of Your Word so we can know what You think and what You want. You've given us the church and the people of God to encourage us, provide fellowship, encouragement, accountability. God, give us clarity on Your will this week, even today as we make decisions that are very important so that in all things we can please You so that You might receive the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.